Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in the second episode of Series 3, we're looking at the emergence of diversity as a regulatory issue. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Lindsay Rogerson and Henry Engler to take a global look at the developing compliance issues for financial services firms and indeed their supervisors. Hello. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Henry. Hi. Hello there. Nice to have you both here. Now, diversity in and of itself is an important issue. Of course it is. But it has risen up the regulatory agenda as it has come under the umbrella of ESG. Now, that's environmental, social or sometimes societal and corporate governance issues, which are fast becoming a strategic priority for firms and regulators alike. And alongside the headline grabbing need to tackle climate change, questions about human rights, social justice and human diversity are now also needing to be managed alongside firms' more traditional values and concerns. Now, investment managers, banks, security firms and their regulators all face a difficult task because the risks associated with ESG are so new. Do you have the data? Can you quantify it? Would you even begin to know how to quantify it? And while there is an understandable global urgency about climate risk, financial institutions are also striving to address a slew of additional social problems. And a key one of those is diversity in all its forms. Now, one of the very many challenges associated with diversity is the lack of an international policy harmonisation. Now, firms are facing a regulatory patchwork quilt of under and overlapping policies and indeed disclosure requirements. How well or indeed otherwise firms deal with navigating those divergent rules and regulations will depend on their governance, their compliance, their human resources and risk management infrastructure and processes. So, Henry, corporate governance is too often an afterthought when discussing the critical ESG issues, and we back to diversity in particular. So, what do firms need to consider? Well, I think I think you're absolutely right, Susanna. Governance, the G part of ESG, is is often sort of overlooked, um, and and it's it's actually perhaps the most critical part of the equation because if you don't have proper governance in your organization, if the board is not fully engaged um, and lays out for the management and the rest of the organization what what the strategy is around diversity, around environment, um, you're you're not going to reap the benefits that are associated in, in this case with diversity. So boards need really and I think that this is sometimes also left unsaid, but this is as much a cultural change issue as anything else. So I think what you need, boards need to promote a culture that's ESG friendly, so to speak. Um, And in this case, a socially diverse environment. So you have to have corporate policies that reflect support for diversity issues, and they should be well documented, communicated, and there should be, and, and the staff and management should be trained in a way um, so that they can affect the policies of the organization. 
and, and I'll, I'll come on to Lindsay and ask about the UK regulatory approach in just a moment. But do you have a sense as to where firms are on actually managing to quantify and report on diversity? I mean, or, or is it this just a tick a box and off we trundle? Yes. Um, one hopes it's not tick a box and off we trundle. But I think that and here I'm, I'll just you know speak from the U.S. perspective. Um, there, the Securities and Exchange Commission is in the midst of coming up with new disclosure requirements um, for diversity or workforce um, metrics, as it's often called, and they're working towards that. At the end, hopefully, I think the the view is that by the end of the year, we will get some information from them about what they would like companies to report. Um, I would say here in the United States, many companies have a lot of information that they could report in terms of their workforce. Um, they, there's a something called the Fair Labor Standards Act, which covers employees. Um, and you have to distinguish between, say, full-time employees and contractors. Um, and, and, and firms have, obviously, data and information on the occupation, wages, age, gender, all of that stuff is available. So it really, I mean, I think from a reporting aspect, it depends what the SEC will want to see, what they will require firms to do um, and report. So that's, we're waiting to see. Yeah, that that and that doesn't help the clarity for now, really, does it? Um, Linz, so where are we in the UK? Is it a slightly clearer picture here? Um, I think as we're recording this, um, there will be um, f- firms rapidly in the UK trying to get a clearer picture. Um, and this is because um, I've, I've been told by the bank and the FCA that the data uh, diversity data pilot in request has actually gone out to firms now and so um for for global for a global audience who don't know this was a, a a little tasty treat that the UK regulators dropped in the laps of financial services firms at the end of July when they produced a a paper on diversity and how they were considering dealing with it. Included in that was uh, the uh, hidden away in chapter four, or not hidden away, but in chapter four. So you had to read quite far through it to discover that actually they were going to be doing um, a, a, a pilot on diversity data uh, this autumn. And so those requests have now gone out. I haven't been able to, the regulators won't give me what the, the extent of the actual request. So for example, the paper talked about eventually going across all nine protected characteristics in the UK, which uh, for those who want to know are um, age, disability, gender, marriage, uh, pregnancy, um, sorry, race, religion, um, and socioeconomic background. So, um, so what we don't know is the extent of that at this point, because the paper also mentioned it said that it would be gathering information from firms about where they were, how place, well placed they were to actually produce this data. So we we, we don't know the range of data that uh, that is being requested right now. But this is something live. It's a live issue for UK firms. They are going to have to produce this data for the regulator or some of the, some of this data for the regulator this autumn. I just I just want to add into the mix here that 
this isn't for those that might be thinking that this is the UK regulators going off left field. Um, actually, this has UK government consent. Um, and it, um, as witnessed by John Glenn, um, our city minister, who uh, revealed at the weekend that every time he talks to a financial services firm in the UK now, he specifically asks how they're getting on with their diversity and for you know where where they are in in, in reaching the targets they have set themselves. Um, so that's the ones they've set themselves, not the ones that are actually being set for them by government, and also. In, if we broaden this out to the European context, um, European financial firms are under SFDR, which is the Sustainable Financial Reg uh, Disclosure uh, Regulation. Disclosure. Thank you, Susanna. Thank you. There's so many, so many initialisms. You get confused. Uh, anyway, of the um, 14 uh, mandatory categories for disclosure under SFDR, two of them relate to diversity. So there is. Um, uh, you have to disclose your gender diversity on your board and you also have to disclose your gender pay gap. And so um, there's actually a lot happening in this space. And so it's not a, in the future, it's 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 right now. So um, yeah, that's, do you, do you, I mean, I mean, there, I don't know if you, if you want to sort of uh, me to expand on it. So there's also some interesting data this week. Obviously we've had our most recent gender pay gap uh, update and you know as might be expected financial services does not come out well we we it, as a sector we never come out well the uh, average uh, pay gap in the UK is now 14% the average pay gap in financial services is um 30 almost 34% and it's actually going backwards um and and this is before so this is 2020 data because they got a 6 month covid provided a 6 month uh, delay in reporting and so this is before the impact of the of the pandemic is taken into account on you know as we as we know as it's been well reported well researched uh women have actually borne the majority of the caring burden through COVID. And so who knows what that has actually done for their bonuses, et cetera. And so, um, and actually, the, just, just, I just want to highlight a couple of, of ones, so, um, which perhaps explains the huge gap in where part of the problem is and why regulators are now looking for, going to look for data. So, for example, and, I, and I, I'm just... Um, I, I, Barclays was the first big name I came across when I was scrolling down the list. I'm not singling them out for any other reason. But OK, so um, the banks have to you have to report on how many women you have in your upper upper echelon. Um, and then you have to also report your 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 gap. And so Barclays has 19 percent of women in its upper echelon. So I think that explains the gap when it comes to pay because you know obviously there's more men on the higher salaries and so yeah I just I, I just I, I will leave it there Susanna I just wanted to sort of explain a little bit about why this why the regulators are perhaps getting a bit tougher and want more more detail on this Thank you. Yeah. And, and I have to say, it's a slightly depressing thought that um, financial services compared to the rest of the population in the UK, we're more than twice as bad in terms of a gender pay gap. That's not a great statistic on any level. Um, Henry, 
sort of picking up a sort of similar but different thread for the US. I mean, and California is so often the sort of leader in these kinds of policies and approaches. Um, I understand that the requirements for firms headquartered in California, they're now talking about, in, in UK terms, it might be described positive discrimination. You must have a minimum number of women. You must have a minimum number of minorities on boards. So where's California going with this? Yeah, exactly. Um, this this came out last year, Susanna. Um, California signed into law a uh, bill that requires publicly held companies that are headquartered in the state to include board members from under what they call underrepresented communities. So, you know, women, people of color, so on and so forth. Um, and the requirement really is that by the end of this year, companies have to have at least one director on their boards who's represented from who's from an underrepresented community. Um, the, this, the categories include an individual who describes themselves as Black, African-American, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, Native American, the list goes on and on, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgen- transgender as well. Um, and so this, this law is unique in the United States. It's the first that we've seen at the state level. And not only is California blazing a new trail here in terms of diversity, this law also carries financial penalties. So if if companies are found not to comply with the regulation, they can face monetary fines. I don't believe it's significant. It's probably in the six figures, Um, but it is, again, unique in the United States at the state level for any um, for any state to 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 require companies to have um, you know people you know diverse a, a diverse board and so you know I, I think an interesting question will be whether or not other states in the U.S. might follow um, you know California is a very progressive state it's usually out in front on all sorts of societal type issues. Um, I think other states will probably want to wait and see, watch how it goes, so to speak, in California um, before perhaps considering similar type state uh, regulations. Uh, certainly New York State could be one. Uh, it's you know a liberal state. It's a democratic state as California is. So I think... Um, sort of watch this space. And I think what's important here is that in terms of enforcing this type of law, um, in the United States, at the state level, you can, as the California law describes, you can penalize companies for not abiding by the regulation. Um, At the federal level, whatever the SEC comes out with at the end of the year, uh, they and this is from speaking to you know legal experts recently, I wanted to get a sense as to, okay, what happens next, right? You're going to ask all of these companies to provide this information, which they've never provided before. What if they don't do so? Do they suffer any penalties, any enforcement actions? And the answer sort of uh, unanimously is no. The SEC doesn't have the authority, say, 
if a company commits fraud to to bring an enforcement action. So, but at the state level, states do, or they it can at least penalize companies. So that's I think an important distinction here in the United States, just to keep in mind. That raises a whole bunch of really interesting questions as to what is the point of collecting this data and if it's not going to be used to visibly drive better more diverse behaviors Mm -hmm. what are they doing it for um in the uk are we going to find people lens for this (laughs) or you know or are we just going to have lots more data to look at well we 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 don't know i mean the the um the gist of the reasoning behind the the, re- the UK regulators' paper was that the diversity of thought on a board and a diversity of thought in an organisation, um, th- that's what they wanted. Um, and, and nobody can actually argue, you know, as, as, as Henry's pointed out, you, you know, it's very hard to argue against these sort of the, that high level goal. But what action, you know, what what levers you know are going to be brought to bear on firms that don't produce data um it it, it, rem- it remains to be it remains to be seen i just it's also i, I think as well getting to get this data some of this data it, the firms some firms are going to be starting from um you know effectively from zero because there, there's a you know a, a, there are privacy concerns, albeit the um F, the regu- the UK regulators highlight that they've been in they've been in consultation with the Information Commissioner, and um the they also point to the Solicitors Regulatory Authority in the UK, which has been collecting data for 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 years, well um almost a decade from law firms. However, this is the thing: it's how comprehensive are these data sets going to be in the UK? If, if So if, for example, the financial regulators follow the SRA example, it's a requirement for the firms themselves to report the data. However, the firms cannot and must not force their employees to answer the questions, to give them the data. So how complete is, are these data sets going to be? That's that's something I think which remains to be, you know, how robust will this data be at the end of the day in the UK? And I, I, just, just to give you an example, the SRA says, you know, one of the ways that you should encourage your employees to hand over this data is um, to include a prefer not to say question. Okay, so using the Bank of England's own data for disability, they're reporting on disability, 21% of bank employees preferred not to answer the question. So is that is the statistic that their workforce is 4.6% disabled accurate or not? You know, and, and, you know, so how are we going to work through these problems? Now, one way to work through these problems and get more robust data is to build in privacy into these and separate out the organization asking their employees for the information from the body responsible or the entity responsible for collecting it. And and there are ways, and we've included a link in the in the show notes to um, an article which explains how you can do this. Um, I won't take up time here, but so that's all of these things are going to have to be discussed in order to ensure that the data is actually robust 
at the end of the day. But in terms of what a regular days is going to do with this, I think one of the things might be all those glossy multi-page brochures that the financial institutions put out uh, loading themselves for all they're doing in diversity. And and I'm, I'm not being flippant there. Obviously, I, I, there are genuine efforts going on and I'm not dismissing that. But with the with the data coming through, what does that actually mean for you know accountability in the firms? Will you know will we see shareholders getting involved in this? You know, um, it, it, that's a it's an intre- it's in it's going to be interesting as to how this all plays out. Um, I think. No, if I could just follow up on that, I think over in the U.S., I think the expectation is that if you can gather all of this information for investors. Again, we're looking at it, you know, the SEC is looking at it primarily to help investors make better decisions. If you have all this information and and companies now can be compared, financial institutions can be compared in terms of their diversity policies and what they're actually delivering, as Lindsay suggests, then there's a certain amount of pressure that's brought to bear on these companies when there is a gap, right? When what they're preaching, what they're telling the public, what they're telling investors diverges with what they're actually doing internally. And I think that that pressure can come from various corners. It can come from institutional investors who are very keen on ESG issues and very focused on ESG issues. Um, I mean, the explosion in sustainable finance and the amount of money that's being poured into it is just phenomenal over the last several years. So that whole segment of the investing community, it will be will be focused on the information that emerges regarding diversity. At the same time, you have lots of activist groups, at least here in the United States, who are very focused on this issue. And if the data emerges that company XYZ um, really does not have any you know, substantial policy in terms of promoting women and people of color or different, you know, different backgrounds, um, then they will bring their political, you know, they'll bring their forces to bear on those organizations. And that can be easily through social media, for example. Uh, so there's there's, you know, there's a reputational risk involved in this, which could translate into a financial risk for firms, um, you know, from the investing standpoint. So I think, yeah, Lindsay's, you know, I think she's spot on in terms of this will kind of open the door, I think, to allow the outside world to see whether or not the rhetoric matches the reality. And, and and Henry, to your point, that's exactly the intention of the European regulatory authorities and European leg- legislators with the SFDR. That's 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 their aim there. So, yeah, it it will be interesting interesting few years, I think, once the data starts coming out. Yeah, and and one very practical example that's already there is New York State Pension Fund has said that it will divest its stocks, and then obviously this is an interesting investment portfolio criteria, it, it won't invest in any firm that doesn't have a woman on the board. Just simply that. They will divest those holdings. And New York State Pension Fund is enormous and has enormous clout. So we're already beginning to see the financial impact or potential financial impact of diversity policies in action. 
Um, I mean, on one level, diversity is kind of easy to measure. Uh, you know, if you've got the data, you've got so many women, you've got so many minorities, you've got so many socioeconomic whatevers. But again, it's how, what does good look like? I mean, what, where are we in terms of a benchmark in any of this? Um, so, so Henry, I mean, is there another way firms should be evaluated on diversity? I mean, are there other criteria other than perhaps what we think the SEC may come up with that firms may wish to say, well, this is how we're being diverse? Right, right. Um, well, certainly over here, the some of the largest financial institutions have in the last several years um, done a lot to show how they are investing in minority institutions, in low-income communities. Um, I'll just give you a few examples. Um, JP Morgan uh, last year announced that it is um, going to commit $30 billion over the next five years to provide economic... Hang on, billion with a B, yes? Billion with a B. Wow, okay. As in boy, yes. Yeah. Over the next five years, to economic opportunity under, and, and underserved communities, um, and 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 the program is very broad. It, it goes into issues such as affordable housing, uh, Black and Latino-owned businesses, and so on. Um, Bank of America earlier this year said it's increased um, from a billion to one point two five billion funds committed to addressing uh, racial inequality and economic opportunity. Goldman Sachs, and this is interesting, Susanna, because this is along the lines of what you just described with the New York um, Pension Fund. In last year, Goldman announced that it will only underwrite initial public offerings for U.S. and European private companies that have at least one diverse board member. And the rule became effective in July 2020. And beginning at the start of this year, Goldman said it's going to raise its target to two diverse candidates for each of their IPO clients. So have there's they another... defined diverse at that point? No. I mean, do they have a... Well, as, as far as I know, they haven't you know, given a good definition of what diverse means. Um, I think it's largely their, their, to their discretion. Uh, discretion, but um, but you know, again, it 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 suggests that at least these large Wall Street firms want to show. Look, there are different ways in which we're we're trying to address the needs of you know at least poor communities, people of color, small businesses that are owned by Black and Latino uh, managers, and and and, and so. Yes, they are trying, apart from what they're trying to do internally, they're trying to also um, highlight what they're doing externally and committing quite substantial numbers, you know, certainly in the case of J.P. Morgan, um, to address some of the inequalities and issues that exist um, in this country. I, I was just going to come in on... Um... Uh, again, actually, another Goldman Sachs uh, example, but this on this side of the the pond, um, you know, obviously Goldman Sachs is committed to uh, a technology, 
unit in Birmingham, you know, so it, to the point about diversity and bringing in how to bring in more more people. Goldman Sachs are also one of the partners of um, the 93% Club. For those who don't know what the 93% Club is, it's a student-founded uh, not-for-profit to promote uh, the opportunities for state school-educated people. The 93% comes from the fact that 7% of the UK population are privately educated. Um, so that's where that comes from. I just I just want to touch something a bit a bit about defining criteria, which is you know how you define things and how you market, Susanna. If if I may, the um, over the summer we had a couple of um, accountancy firms here come out and say that they were going to up their working class. Uh, percentage of their workforce uh, from working class backgrounds. Um, over the what was interesting was how they then chose to define working class because both of the organisations mentioned are members of the um, the City of London Corporation's uh, Social Mobility Task Force, which recommends very different measures. And so I think how you measure some of these. Diverse categories is is very important, um, and I, I'll put a link to the um, the three social mobility questions that should help you get that in 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 the show notes. Um, I just want to, if if I may, touch just finally on on one thing. Um, I'm aware that we're probably running out of time, and so before you turn my mic off, I will. Um, I I just want to raise the issue of. Um, I, I think a very dangerous corridor that certainly the FCA might be heading down with the whole diversity piece. That is, um, in speeches going back a number of years now, they have said that we need to increase gender diversity and diversity on boards because it leads to more profitable companies. And the basis for that is McKinsey work. Um, but there is, um, and again, we'll put this in the show notes so you can read it for yourself. There, There is, um, as yet, unpeer-reviewed uh, evidence now that that is not actually the case. And so the, the, my, my point being, I think regulators would be do well to steer away from the we are doing this because we are doing this because it leads to greater profitability argument rather than we are doing this because it is the right thing to do for society. And that fits into the ESG argument there rather than the pure profit argument. So I'll, I'll stop there, Susanna. No, I mean, and, and hopefully, I mean, we'll move on to the takeaways in particular for compliance officers. But hopefully I think that discussion just gives you at least a flavour of the sheer breadth of the number of issues that the diversity label, if you like, now encompasses. And by association, that's what firms now need to think about. And financial services firms perhaps need to think about it more than most, as, as we already know. Now, from my takeaway for all of this is I think firms are going to have to think both creatively and consistently as to how they are going to collect data and then record it. And the assumptions associated with that data, is it recreatable? If you're asked why the number was three, how can you prove that? Could you recreate it? It is going to be an evolution rather than, I suspect, a revolution, all of this data and reporting. So be very aware, anything you put out there, you are going to have to be able to evidence, prove, if that's the way you want to put it, but also you are going to have to justify what you've said. I mean, even if it's only philosophically, let's be frank. 
Um, Henry, so what other firms, what, what other questions rather, should firms be asking themselves about diversity as a takeaway? Well, I think um, I think it's perhaps important to make a distinction between large firms and, and smaller firms because the biggest firms, some of the ones I just mentioned, I mean, they they are well ahead, I think, in terms of having internally a structure to deal with diversity, to deal with climate risk, the whole ESG framework, right? Um, there are people, there are groups assigned, many of them have a chief diversity officer, um, a new title, a new position that's emerged in the last few years um, that's clearly accountable and focused on these issues from the uh, collecting the data to essentially providing the data to regulators when when it, when they're required to do so. But I think you also need to look at diversity again within an ESG context and then what does that mean for risk management, compliance, HR, so on and so forth. And you you know the end game I think here um, and I and I agree completely with your term, you know, evolution, because this is a this is a new journey for firms, big and small. Um, but the end, you know, the end point or the hope anyway is that we will get to a stage where the sort of risks associated with diversity, again, climate, just ESG in general. Um, get to a point, these firms get to a point where they can quantify the risks similar to other financial risks that they have, you know, routinely collect and manage. That's going to be tough. It's going to be hard um, because this is new. This is different. And I think an important question that many should ask themselves is, do we have the right talent? Do we have the right skills to do this kind of work. And I, I've spoken to a number of lawyers um, on this side of the pond who, who argue that lots of companies think this is an easy transition for compliance people. You know, it's just like any other risk. Well, it's really not. And do you have the background? Do you have the skills? Do you have the experience to deal with the risks associated with diversity, with climate? Maybe not. And so maybe there should be a self-examination within organizations to to make sure that they do have the right people in place. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, Linz, what else for takeaways for poor beleaguered compliance officers at this point? Um, I, I want to endorse everything Henry said, by the way. I, I wholeheartedly agree that you know, there's right skill sets. Might, people with the right skill sets might not be there and that should be assessed as part of any um, program. But I just wanted to throw one final one into the mix, if, if I may, Susanna, and it came from um, some work that the Financial Standards Conduct Board, which used to be called the Banking Standards Board um, in the UK, uh, a, a report that they put out this week, which again, I'll put in the show notes. Um, and they were talking about a concept. So as we move through COVID and we return, we talk about what the future of the workplace is going to look like. So what's that mix? Is it going to be um, the balance between homeworking and, and everything? That report really highlighted that 
the um the negative effect that the uh, pandemic has had on the opportunities for the current graduate cohort in terms of learning and building social capital and everything and so they there's a term in that report called organizational justice and i think as part of the and um, because let's not forget age is a protected category in the uk um and so i think as you know firms consider all the diverse the the how they will uh, you know create a properly diverse workforce um i think this idea of you know balancing the um the the different groups and you know and ensuring that there's organizational fairness and um organizational justice i think is an, is a, is a is a good thought to leave everyone with organizational justice our vocabulary just got bigger i think um on that lindsay thank you very much henry thank you very much i think that was a fascinating conversation um, and thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. We hope it, you found it both interesting and useful. Now, we've mentioned the show notes a couple of times in this. It's going to be stuffed full of links that, again, I hope you find very useful. I'll also pop in a link to our new ESG report, uh, together with a link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. Last but not least, as ever, we would very much appreciate it if you take the time to review the podcast and let us know if you've got any suggestions for future topics. Thank you for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.